0: Now, today's sermon is going to be a lot different than most messages that I preach. Now, typically as a church, we go through books of the Bible. I love taking the Word of God and bringing it to bear upon us as followers of Jesus. I used to work at Outback Steakhouse when I was going through college, trying to make ways to to help uh, prepare my way to be married one day and trying to save up money. And so as I was making Bloomin' Onions... I would dip them into the buttermilk, and then I would put them into this, this powdery substance. It was beautiful, and you would roll it around. You put it back in the buttermilk, and you put it back in this powdery little substance, and you just roll it around so that it all gets inside. Well, that's what I seek to do with us as followers of Jesus when we gather on Sunday mornings. I want to roll you around like a blooming onion. I want to get as much of the Word into your hearts and into your lives so that you might love and follow Jesus more faithfully. So Lord willing, next week we're going to jump back into our sermon series through the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 2, picking up where we left off before. Christy and I went to Israel, but I do want to take some time today to share with you about our experience over in Israel together. It was a phenomenal trip where 17 of us, a team of 17, uh, went to the Holy Land. It was supposed to take place back in March of 2020, and we all remember what happened then. And so we had to reschedule this trip five times, but the Lord was very gracious, and it finally enabled us to go. And when we went, our entire team our faith was strengthened, our joy was increased, and we all were stirred with a greater passion for Jesus. But I think for me, one of the big takeaways is I have an even greater confidence that the Bible really is the Word of God. Now, convictionally, I've always been there, but in many ways, I feel like the roots of my conviction went deeper, there's a greater foundation that this really is the Word of God, that we can trust this book. You can bank your soul upon all that this Word contains. And so as we springboard into today's message, I want us to look together at Psalm 119, verse 160. Psalm 119 verse 160. So let's look at this together. Let me show you uh, Psalm 119, verse 160. Now at 176 verses long, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. This psalm is an acrostic poem. It has 22 stanzas, one for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, you and I, we can't see this in the English translations that we have in our laps. But with each stanza, each verse begins with the same Hebrew letter. So if you can imagine that a a third grader comes home with an acrostic poem where every sentence begins with the letter E. That's what Psalm 119 is, is that for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each verse within that stanza begins with that Hebrew letter. But also, every verse in Psalm 119 is a celebration, it's an affirmation, and it's a desperation for God's word. For 176 verses, the psalmist points to God's precepts, God's statutes, God's commands, God's judgments, God's decrees, God's instruction, God's ways, and how good they are. And as followers of Jesus, we are to memorize them, meditate upon them, love them, and obey them. And we get to Psalm 119, verse 160. This is what the scripture says. The entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. What I'd like to do now as we unpack this beautiful verse in Scripture is I want you to see the beauty and the truth of God's Word. And as, if I can get our, our tech team, KD, can you all bring me a handheld? Is that okay? We'll just do that. Well, I'll go with a handheld today. I want you guys to have great confidence that every word, every letter, every sentence... Every paragraph, every page, every book in each testament is 100% accurate and true in all that it contains. So God, who is truth, tells us about Himself. We have His self-revelation of who He is, what He is like, and how we can relate with Him through His Word. This is why the psalmist writes in verse 160, The entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. You see, God's word reflects God's character. God is truth, therefore, his word is truth. God is righteous, therefore, his word is righteous. God is eternal. Therefore, verse 160, his word endures forever. You see, what you believe about the Bible reveals about what you believe about God. If you doubt the truthfulness of Scripture, you're doubting the very character of God. You're saying, in essence, God, you are not sovereign enough to preserve or protect your word. When we question and doubt the revelation of God of how he's revealed himself in his word, we're saying, God, you are not powerful enough, nor are you good enough to keep your word in a way that we can understand it and know you rightly. If there is anything God is passionate about, it is his own glory. And he desires for all men to know him and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You can have great confidence that God speaks with clarity and accuracy through his word. And for those who question his word, you are saying, God, you are not sufficient. You're questioning the character of God. For God has tied up his character with his word. You either trust it all or you don't. You can't pick and choose what parts of scripture you like and what parts you do like. Because if you can begin picking and choosing what you like and what you don't like, it's not God that you're worshiping, it's yourself. You're creating an idol. You're creating a false God based on what your heart wants to believe is true, not based on what is truth. In 1820, U.S. President Thomas Jefferson used a razor to cut out parts of the Gospels that he did not like. He cut and pasted what he agreed with, and he made a whole new book. And he called it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we may scoff that he would do such a thing, but make no mistake, people do the same thing today. People pick and choose which parts of the Scripture they agree with and which ones they reject. But make no mistake, people reject the Bible not because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. The Bible is a light that exposes the darkness of our hearts and convicts us of sin. The Spirit uses the Word to shine a spotlight on the evil in our hearts and lives. And in our flesh, man rejects the light. We hate the light, John 3. We love love the dark and we don't want accountability and we certainly don't want the reality of final judgments. But you cannot skirt around truth no matter how inconvenient it is. When I was going through seminary, there were scholars that I would read who would cast doubt upon the Word of God. And they would call certain stories of Scripture myths or fairy tales. Well, one of the fairy tales that they referred to was Joshua chapter 6 in the walls of Jericho. And it was there that they said, well, there's been no archaeological evidence proving that there ever was walls of Jericho. Well, guess what? Last week, when we were in Israel, I got to see the walls of Jericho. I've got a picture I want to show you of the actual archaeological digs that has taken place over in Jericho in which they have discovered walls that date back to the exact time in which Joshua and the people of God go into the promised land. Now, the size of these walls are mammoth at 64 feet wide and 25 feet high. But there was one part of the wall that did not fall. And in fact, in that part, they found houses inside the wall. When you go read Joshua chapter 2, verse 15, who lived in the walls of Jericho... But Rahab, a woman who protected the spies, and according to Matthew chapter one verse five, she would become the great great grandmother of King David, who will one day be, uh, be through the lineage through which the true King of Israel, King Jesus, would come. You see, on this trip, I was encouraged and I was reminded that the Bible is the Word of God. It's completely true and trustworthy in all that it contains. And my heart broke as I thought about how many people believed the garbage that was rejecting the validity and accuracy of Scripture. People who walked away from the faith because they thought stories like this were fairy tales or myths. They're not. Every jot and tittle, Jesus says, every little movement of the pen of the Word of God is true. You can bank your soul upon all that it contains. That Joshua chapter 6 really did happen. Where the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And it's not just a song that we teach children. It's a real event that has been proven archaeologically. It was amazing to me that as we were working with our guide, as we were traveling around, he shared with me that they have uncovered only 5% of all that there is to discover underneath the grounds of Israel. So 95% of archaeological digs are still to be discovered. But here's what's crazy. Of the tens of thousands of archaeological digs that they have made, every single one of them confirms the Bible is true. Guess how many archaeological digs that they've done where they've discovered something that contradicts Scripture? Zero. You can trust that book in your lap. Every word that it contains. You can bank your soul upon all that it is revealing to you. For God has gone on record. And as I told our team over in Israel, over and over and over again, y'all, the whole thing is rigged. God has rigged all of it in favor of himself. That is the truth. The question is, will you submit to it? It's amazing to me that we can have confidence in what God has revealed to us, but this book is not just pointing you to something, it's pointing you to someone. It's driving you to Jesus. He is the one that the entire Scriptures are pointing us towards. This Jesus of Nazareth is the one who is ready to change your life. And it's this Jesus who did most of His ministry here. If we can throw up the the EP picture here, Miss Tammy. What you're going to see here is the Sea of Galilee. You're overlooking the location where Jesus performed the majority of His miracles in His ministry. This is where the majority of His work took place. This is the seas where Jesus calmed storms walked on water, called His disciples. It was at towns all around the seashore of this lake that He performed miracles. It was here on the banks of this lake. And so as your, to your left, this is the Gentile side of the lake. And it's up on this mountain to decide that Jesus went over on a boat with His disciples. They got to the other side. And as they got there, only He got out because the Scripture points to the disciples staying in the boat. They didn't want to go to the Gentile side. So Jesus goes to the nations and He goes to one man who's possessed by demons. This is a man who's in a cemetery, he's cutting himself, he's screaming. Jesus casts out the demons, they go into a, bank, into a group of pigs who then come down this embankment and go right into the sea. That took place right over there. This is the Sea of Galilee where the majority of Jesus' ministry took place up in the north. And that man that he healed, the man begged him, can I please follow you? And Jesus says, no, I want you to go to the Decapolis. Go to the 10 cities and tell them all that the Lord has done for you. Well, one of the 10 cities is Bet Sheem. Bet Sheem. But, but um, as you get the picture of that uh, up there, Doug, I want you to all to see Beth Sheem. Beth Shean is the hill that is out in the distance, In this picture, this is 1 Samuel 31, where King Saul and his sons were hung on the walls after they died in battle. That is Bet-Sheehan that took place after the battle at Mount Gilboa, which is on the other side of this picture right here. What's also interesting is this city below, and if you can go to the next picture, Doug, What's amazing is this right here are the ruins of what is left of Bet Shean, a city that was destroyed by an earthquake in 749 BC. Now the significance of what you're seeing is what has been, you can see the, the remaining Roman columns and the way that this used to be back in the day. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a prodigal son, a son who takes his inheritance from his father and goes off to another land and he lives with wild living he li- he gives himself to all kinds of decadence and sexual immorality and spending all of his wealth well bet shean would have been a city that the disciples heard of and thought oh that sounds like a place like that this is a place with bathhouses and gambling and sexual immorality and the theater and entertainment and anything that you could ever desire for the flesh But what happened is when the earthquake struck in 749, the city was utterly destroyed. Upon excavation of this property, archaeologists found the remains of a man who was crushed underneath one of the columns that fell on him during the earthquake. Grasped in the man's hands was a bag of money. The story is told that possibly in the midst of the chaos of the earthquake in the city crashing around him, the man ran and grabbed his money and then he fell to his death. The love of money led to his death. Proverbs 11.4 says, Wealth is not profitable on a day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are not those who store up treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. We store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where our hearts are, there we, there, where, where your heart is, there your treasure may be also. But Jesus uh, also uh, would have uh, had uh, this place, and I think, Doug, I skipped over Uh, The Sermon on the Mount. Can you go back to that one for me, please? That's on me. The Mount of Beatitudes. Oh, this is beautiful. Right now at the bottom of there, you see the Sea of Galilee below you. This is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. Thousands of people gathered here in this amphitheater type layout. And Jesus preaches a sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached. And he brings to bear a new kingdom ethic. He begins preaching as to what the world should look like in the new kingdom. This sermon was so powerful that even today it continues to shape cultures and governments and churches and families all over the world. Took place right there. It's amazing to me the heart that God has for the nations. He longs to see all people come to a saving knowledge of the truth but he also has a heart for his fellow Jews. We see Jesus would be brought here to the Mount of Precipice. I'm going to show you here on the environmental projections the Mount of Precipice. And if we can bring the lights down just a bit, I want you all to see what's happening here. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And if you can imagine, as you're looking out in this valley, Nazareth is directly behind you. That's the hometown of Jesus. That's where he grew up. That's the small town where they knew his family, his dad Joseph. They knew his mother Mary. And he goes back in Luke chapter 4 and he goes into the synagogue and he unveils the scroll. He pulls back the scroll. He brings the word of God to bear. He begins talking about how God has a heart for Gentiles and how he himself, the scriptures are fulfilled in their reading. He's pointing to himself as the Messiah. And the people were so enraged by such a declaration that they brought him here to throw Jesus off a cliff. And so he was standing right where you are, right here. But I want you to see what's also happening here at this moment. So off to your left over here is Mount Tabor, possible location of the transfiguration. Off to your right in the far distance is Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah went and did battle with the prophets of Baal. And underneath your feet in the valley is the valley of Armageddon. Revelation 19 points to the day in which you and I are going to be here. The final battle will take place right here. It will be a bloody, awful battle. But Jesus will come and those who are with him will be riding horses. That's us. The scripture does not say that we're going to be carrying any weapons with us because the only weapon is the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus. And it is at this place that he will do away with his enemies once and for all. Take a good hard look here, y'all, because you're going to be here one day. At the end of the age, we're going to be with the Lord. And it's going to be a day of reckoning. And it's a day of celebration for those who belong to Jesus. You see, there's coming a day in which everyone from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who has believed the gospel, we will be with the Lord. you see, this is the heart of God for the nations. He longs for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he will do whatever it takes to bring people into the kingdom, even go to a water well in Samaria. When we get to John chapter four, we see that Jesus is influencing a lot of people. His popularity is growing in Jerusalem. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't like the fact that Jesus is gaining momentum in his ministry. And so he tells his disciples, hey, we're going on a road trip. And so they begin to set out away from Jerusalem. And verse 4 says he had to go through Samaria. Now I want you to grab hold of the significance of this. Jesus is in the south in Jerusalem. He's headed up north to Galilee. And in the middle is Samaria right here. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. We heard this so eloquently last week from Pastor Corey as he was talking about the the parable of the the Good Samaritan. These are half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. They hated each other. Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. So much so that whenever Jews wanted to go from the south in Judea and Jerusalem to go up north to Galilee, instead of going straight up north, like up I-65... They go over the Jordan River, which is right here. They cross over the Jordan River, go north, and then come back over just to avoid Samaria in the middle. But what did Jesus do? He went right up the middle. He crossed geographical barriers. He also crossed racial barriers. Jews and Samaritans, they didn't. Jihaw, they didn't like each other. didn't matter to Jesus. He had an appointment with this woman To lead her to himself. This is a man who crossed, Jesus crossed gender barriers because men, especially rabbis, do not speak to women in public. And as he's headed there, the disciples are so confused as to why in the world they're going through Samaria. And while they're away at Sychar, he comes to this water well right here. This is called Jacob's Well. This is the well that Jacob dug up back in Genesis 33. The exact same well. It's the only one in the area. So we know that this is the well of Jacob from Genesis 33 and from John chapter 4. And it's here that Jesus encounters this woman who's had five husbands. And she's now living with a man who's not her husband. And like a trained TSA agent, he begins to unpack the baggage of her life. He begins to reveal all the hidden things in her heart. She begins to realize, oh my goodness, he really is the Messiah. She makes a beeline to Sychar to go tell everybody, could this be the Messiah? Come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. That took place right here. This well is actually still working. In fact, I got to drink water from it. It Still works. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm drinking water from the same well that Jesus and Jacob and patriarchs have drank from. It's right there. And I was reminded, look at God's heart for the nations. A woman who's not Jewish. A woman who's a dog in the eyes of the Jews. And look at the heart of God. He loves the nations. And Jesus is willing to cross geographic and gender and racial barriers to bring people to himself. And that is the heart of God, to see people come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And it would be at this well that he would begin to explain to this woman, you drink from this water and you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink from me, the living water, you will never thirst again. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus then came here to the Garden of Gethsemane. He came here to pray. It's at the foot of the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem a place where Jesus would regularly gather with His disciples because Judas Iscariot knew where to find Him that fateful night. These are the same trees that were there when Jesus was there. 2,000-year-old trees still there. And it's underneath these trees that Jesus prayed on that fateful night. And He prayed to the point of drops of blood coming out of His pores as He's preparing to drink the cup of God's wrath for the sins of the world on the cross. It was here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus suffered, and he prayed, Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And it would be here that Judas Iscariot would lead the soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. Jesus would then be taken across the Kidron Valley and marched up to the home of Caiaphas. It would be in the basement there where he would be beaten, mocked, spit upon, cursed at, lied about, and denied. And then Jesus would then be lowered through this hole down into a dungeon underneath Caiaphas' house to wait for the trials that would come the next day. Here Jesus was left alone in the dark, left alone, waiting the worst that the world could throw at him the next day. And it was in this dungeon that our team read Psalm 88. Psalm 88 says, for I have had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. I'm counted among those going down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead, i'm like the slain lying in the grave whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care you have put me in the lowest part of the pit in the darkest places in the depths your wrath weighs heavily on me you have overwhelmed me with all your waves you have distanced my friends from me you have made me repulsive to them I am shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. This is where Jesus would remain until the next day in which he would face trials before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, and before Herod. He would be flogged, mocked, beaten, and nailed to a cross. Now there's debate today into the actual location of Jesus' death. Some think it is at Skull Hill. Others think it took place at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I'm gonna show you a picture. This is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the place that is the presumed place where Jesus died. Inside this church, it's both wonderful and heartbreaking. As pilgrims from all over the world will come and bow down and worship that place. Many people will take shrouds of cloth and rub the presumed rock that Jesus, is, Jesus was prepared for burial. And their hope is that by rubbing the cloth on that, they will be buried with it in hopes that that will provide for them resurrection. Whether this is the location or whether it's Skull Hill, the place is not as important as to why Jesus died. Jesus came and gave His life for broken sinners like us. That you and I are messy and broken and we are in desperate need of grace. That in order for you and I to be forgiven before a holy God, there must be the shedding of perfect blood. And it can't be yours and it can't be mine. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, who lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. Died the death that we deserved. That his perfect blood that was shed was enough to cover every sin that you've ever committed. At the beauty of the gospel, that it was here at Golgotha, that Jesus gladly and willfully, willingly went to the cross. He died in your place. You are so loved by God. Look at the cross of Christ, and that is where God goes on record to show you how much He loves you. And even while you were in rebellion, and even while you rejected Him, and even while you shook your fist in His face with your sin, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is what we rally around as followers of Jesus, is we are a people who don't deserve to be here or a group of people who have believed this gospel and have declared together not only did Jesus die historically, Jesus died personally. He died for me. Question is, have you believed that personally? I'm not asking if you mentally believe that Jesus died on the cross. I'm saying, are you willing to say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me? One is information. The other leads to transformation. You must come to the point in time in your life in which you say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was my disobedience. And yet he loved me and gave himself up for me and I believe it. Have you come to that point in time in your life where you've surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, today you can be born again. Today there can be a transformation that takes place in your heart by you today saying, Lord, I'm going to turn away from my old life. The Bible calls it repentance. You repent. You turn away from your old life and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You put your faith and trust in him and you believe that he died on the cross for you. This Jesus didn't only die. He was also placed in a tomb. Tomb that looked probably similar to this one, a place where he was laid. But guess what? He didn't stay there. For th- on the third day, Jesus came back and he defeated death. Jesus rose again. And because he defeated death, so too will all who trust in him that death no longer has the last word on you or me because Christ died and rose again. The beauty of the gospel is that we are a people who in the mind of God are already raised with Him and seated in the heavenlies. That we have a Savior who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ the righteous, who came and gave His life for us at Calvary, was buried and rose again on the third day. That our hope and trust is not in a dead Savior, it's not in the dead Messiah, but in the living hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is alive and well. The one who lives inside of all who believe and trust in him. This is what we're banking our souls upon. That we're a people of the book. We believe the truth of this book. And the truth of this book, his name is Jesus, changes everything about us. This is where our hope is found. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The grave couldn't hold him. And guess what? The grave won't hold you either. We will rise and be with him forever. What about Peter? What about the one who denied Jesus three times on the night of his betrayal? It's humbling to think about this brother who gave so much of his life to following Jesus where he would often speak before he thinks. I'm not sure if anybody else here is like that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied him three times. Peter said, I don't know him. I don't know who he is. I'm not familiar with that guy. We know the story where the rooster crows and immediately he realizes what Jesus said would happen, happened. And he denied him three times. Scripture says he wept bitterly. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appeared to his disciples. Eventually, the disciples, they go back to Galilee. They head back north. They go back to fishing like they were. And while they're up there, while they're fishing, they're not catching anything that night. As the sun rises off in the distance on a the shoreline, is a man cooking breakfast. And the man yells, have you all caught anything? The disciples and Peter say, No. He says, throw out your net on the other side of the boat. They throw out their nets, and immediately they fill up with fish. And Peter yells, it's the Lord. And the scripture says, they're still a hundred yards off. He jumps in the water and swims ashore. And it's right here at Tagba, where Jesus restores Peter. Peter. Three times he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? One for each time that Peter denied him. And three times Peter said, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know that I love you. And each time Jesus says, feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. Shepherd my lambs. What a great reminder that in a moment when Jesus could have shamed Peter, in a moment when Jesus could have pointed his finger at him, a whole bunch of how-could-you's, Jesus cooks him breakfast. You may be thinking, man, I've messed up so bad. There's no way God could ever restore me. There's no way God could ever still love me. It's this place for me that's one of the most precious places in all the Holy Land. It's a reminder that we're never too far gone from God's grace. That even though you may have broken God's law, you may have sinned, you may have made a stupid decision. You may have even denied the Lord three times. It is here that Jesus reminds us He cooks us breakfast. He doesn't throw your past in your face. He doesn't shame you overwhelming grace and love is yours in the face of Jesus that you can come back to him and he will restore you and he will give you work to do for his kingdom I think for me what stood out the most for this trip was one last place that we went in Getty In Getty is an oasis in the middle of the desert. When King David was fleeing for his life from Saul, this is where he came, hiding in the caves, hoping not to be found. It was here that while Saul went into one of the caves and not paying attention, that David went and cut off a part of his robe. And it would be here that David would write Psalm 58 and he would write about how the Lord is the one who refreshes him even as he faces his enemies. It was a great reminder that as followers of Jesus, when we go through seasons of dryness in a barren land, where spiritually we're just not as close to Jesus as we'd hoped, we can still come back to Jesus to be refreshed, to be transformed, to be reminded of who he is. So a couple Sundays ago, I was here preaching to our team, while you guys were here. And as we hiked up to this location, there were several college Aid students that were hanging out. and They saw our group coming, and so they walked on, but one girl stayed behind. And as, he be- as I began to preach Psalm 58, I began laying out the gospel. And I see this girl who's not with our group, but she's paying very close attention. After we pray, we take some pictures, we dismiss this girl approached Christy and I, and she said, you're very inspiring. And I said, well, when you meet Jesus, you get pretty excited. And I said, did you know that Jesus loves you? And she said, I didn't know that. I said, well, what is your name? And she said, Hagar. And I said, well, Hagar, I want you to know that Jesus loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins. He gave his life for you and he was buried but he rose again on the third day and he gives eternal life to anybody who trusts in him. This is the gospel and I pointed to my wife and I said at age 19 she gave her life to Jesus and I said at age 18 I gave my life to Jesus and he has changed us and he can change your life and her eyes were glued to mine and she was feasting off of every word I could share with her. And as our team was now out of sight and out of distance and we needed to go catch up, I said, Hagar, do you own a Bible? She goes, yes. I said, okay, I want you to go read the Gospel of John. Go read John and I want you to learn about how much God loves you and how he's inviting you to believe. And she says, I'm going to go do that. And I was reminded once again, the heart of God for the nations. That on a trip that had been postponed five times, the Lord ordained my steps to come to that location at that time to meet with that woman at that water well. And to point her to the living water. That God has a heart for the nations. To see all people come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And you and I have water well moments every day in which God brings people into our lives in which we get to point them to the living water. That they can look to Jesus and be refreshed. They can look to Jesus and be forgiven and be adopted and be brought into a brand new kingdom. We have that opportunity. And why do we do this? Because every word in that book is true. It's trustworthy and it endures forever.